Welcome to the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. Today, I'm speaking with Regina Ingabire, a Community Outreach Manager at the Portland Bureau of Emergency Management, and Virginia Luca, a Program Specialist for the Pacific Islander Community at the Multnomah County Health Department. Regina and Virginia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you here today. I know that you have your roles with the Portland Bureau and the Multnomah County Health Department, but you're also serving as culturally specific COVID-19 liaisons. Can you tell me what that means? Regina, could you start for us? Yeah, this law, cultural specific liaison, was created at uh, Aminoma Operations Emergency Center, USC. And uh, when it was created, it was the beginning of March uh, when the USC was activated. And uh, the goal was to make sure that we can be point of contact for cultural specific organizations and individuals to make sure that we are sending updated information because, as you know, information is changing really fast. It is changing very fast. Those cultural specific organizations can also lay back information to us, what they're hearing from the communities and what their concerns then we can take back to our leadership to make sure that we're getting answers back to the community. Virginia, what does that look like for you? Yeah, um, before I share, I also want to acknowledge that Beth Poteet is the third liaison that we have. So I wanted to give a special shout out to her. Um, So for myself, I've been a liaison for the past week. And when I came in, you know, Regina and Beth were already doing amazing work. And how I contribute is, um, you know, other than checking emails and responding to folks, the biggest share that I do is Communities of Color COVID-19 partner call that happens every Thursday in which we have about 116 folks from the community come into that session and try to do sharing of resources, catching up on what people are doing and trying to find out what is the best ways that we can help our community members, which of course, when we hear feedback, then we have to do something with it, right? We have to pass it on to whoever it needs to go to. We have to find out why isn't it being done already? Is there already a system that's doing it? So there's a lot of untangling that happens. There's a lot of background information that happens. And because, you know, we're trying to do this work from our position in a larger model, always trying to understand the system and making sure that we are honoring the community voice and we're honoring the community for what they're needing. Because ultimately, that's why we're doing the work, right? Um, what can we do to uplift their voice and their needs from their standpoint? And what are you finding right now? If you could talk about key priorities, needs, and challenges within communities that you're working with, what are you seeing? I think for myself, since before I was on this cultural liaison specific work, I was doing Pacific Islander specific research and community engagement. Um, And I feel like I can speak pretty clearly about the Pacific Islander need in Multnomah County and Oregon. Even before COVID-19 happened, we already had our disparities. We already had lots of things in our community that they were not having access to, that that they were having barriers to. COVID-19 just made things even worse. Mm -hmm. Right. So one thing specifically that every day, almost for the past week, at least I've had at least, you know, one or two people call me and say, where can I find Pacific Islander data? How do we know how many people in our community is affected, has been treated? So that is just an example of how the way we collect data does not help everybody because we don't disaggregate in a way that is informative for our specific communities that are usually, you know, left out of the conversation, you know, and that was a problem already before COVID-19. I'm always trying to think of what can we do now and what are we going to work on post 
you know, response, making sure that we have unified ways of where we're collecting data and how we're sharing data. Like, for example, it isn't easy to just go to a website and find out how many people, Pacific Islander communities have a COVID-19 in Multnomah County, Yamhill, Clackamas, you know, uh, Marion, because each county has its own separate way of collecting things and sharing it out. It's hard to tell the story of the community if we don't have the data to back it up, right? And vice versa, like so many times we, I, as a community partner, I'm hearing things from my community that is not being reflected in the data. And the people who normally have the power to make change, what are they normally looking at? The data, right? So it's our responsibility to make sure that the stories are uplifted because that is part of the data. And that you're connecting those two. The story and the data need to work together to make the case. They need to work together. Exactly. So to me, like, especially since I just got off another phone call that was around race and ethnicity data, how it's being collected, how it's being distributed, how it's being used. So it's not just for the Pacific Islander community, it's for all communities. Regina, what are you seeing? As Virginia said, it's true. Most of these communities, the COVID-19 made things worse in so many ways. Uh, like what I've been hearing from some of the community members, people are finding a hard time getting that food they might buy and cook at their homes. And also there is a um, lack of um, like resources to help their children continue their education at home. As we all know that most of education right now is online, parents who don't have the technological savvy to know how to support their children, some parents cannot read or write themselves. So now you can imagine that in long term, the impact is going to have to the children. When the schools are back in the fall, hopefully, if everything goes well, those are challenges we have from the communities. And um we try our best to connect them to res- existing resources, the school districts they are coming from, but still the challenges there. And the challenges we hear from the community is how to take care of someone who has COVID-19 at home, given that some of these communities could be living like in small space or small house or apartment. And how do you make sure that you're taking some care of someone who is sick without exposing the rest of the family members to the virus. The challenge is real. We're doing our best, but... The needs are many out there. And I I would also imagine that in some cases there's a, from the health perspective, there's a language need. How do you get the messages out in multiple languages? And that yeah. that's also true in the education world. It's complex. And how are you thinking about that? Virginia, I know you touched on sort of that systems mm-hmm. view. What does that look like? So... When I think of the ways that language, the need for language, translation, on-site interpretation, one thing that we struggled in in the beginning was we have all of the messages usually come out in English, right, automatically. And then, you know, people deciding, well, what other languages should we advocate for this, you know, message to be translated into? And having to advocate for, you know, Pacific Islander languages that people might not even realize that we have a large Chukis population, a large Marshallese population. Normally only people who are doing work in that community know what the language access is, right? And kind of showing people that when we do translations, it's not a word for word. You can't just give me something in English and I'm going to word for word translate it into a Palawan language. That's, that's my ethnic group. My mom's from the island of Palau. And, you know, it's, 
you can't just hand us something in English and say, please translate this. Sure. There has to be this back and forth communication of what are you trying to convey? What message are you actually trying to have people do? And then from a cultural perspective of what other underlying things do I have to point out that maybe in an English form, you're kind of reading between the lines already, right? And having to know what culturally specific way do you need to convey this information? Because it's not just enough to tell people to wear a face mask, you know? Sure. You have to also say things like, you know, it's not a good idea to share the face mask. This is how you should take care of the face mask, right? To someone else, it might be like, oh, yeah, get a face mask. Okay, that makes sense. But, right. Right. you know, like you have to be very specific and try to think of ways that our um, communities, our immigrants and refugees are going to take that information, even in their language, how they're going to compute that information and then make sure. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we want them to be safe and secure, but what is it that we have to say to make sure that is understood? For example, when the governor's office puts out a message, it's usually in English. Well, then, you know, I always wonder, well, whose job is it to then make sure it gets translated to all the communities, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Because how do we expect people to stay home and stay safe um, if they don't quite understand, right. right? Like, what does that mean? What can I do? Does that mean I can never leave my house? No, of course you need to leave your house when you need to go to the grocery store, but maybe only send one person to the grocery store instead of making it, you know, like a household vacation. Yeah, right? a family outing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then also being cognizant of the fact that so many people of color, as you know, I can speak for my community, Pacific Islander community, some of these directives don't work for multi-generational households, right? Like how, what kind of message can we give folks for, like, for example, I have a friend who lives in a house with 12 people and two bathrooms, right? And three bedrooms. So you can't tell people to self-isolate, be in your own room. You know, we are still taking care of children. We're still taking care of our elders. My 80-year-old mother lives with me. So sometimes, you know, when I read a directive, I have to say, well, this doesn't really work for my community. This doesn't work for my own household, mm -hmm. right? right? Like you're asking me to do right. something that I can't even do in my own home. So constantly thinking about what are ways that our messaging has to be community informed and community driven and even community created, right? Mm -hmm. Like it should start with the community because it's for the community. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Regina, do you have comments on that? Yeah. Just to touch base on what Virginia said, it's true. Uh, we try our best to translate information into different languages to make sure that can reach the wider audience. For example, I'll give you a quick example. We created uh, posters which had information about how to stay safe and also created videos with animations and then translate those into really comprehensive uh, list of languages over 30, we did it 37 languages, which was a combination between uh, all the languages the city of Portland covers, also including my county. It's quite a project. <laughs> it was. That was a very successful project in terms of reaching out to the communities. However, as Virginia said, there's that you translate a message from English to a different language, there's a cultural piece that is likely to be missing. So you needed to elaborate a little bit more. Right. So, right. and another thing I want to highlight is that information moves really fast. I mean, it's evolving every day. Sometimes, no matter how much we try to make sure that we can translate messaging, create those videos and missions, but there is... Um, delay because we can't keep up with the information that's coming out. New guidance are coming out every day. 
And uh, we try our best, but each day we send out to our community contacts we have. We have really quite large number of people reach about 1,400 contacts or even more. Okay. And we ask those community members to share that messaging directly with their community members, maybe translate where it's possible, while we're also in our back so doing our work and translating that message and it out officially. Yeah. Have you seen the need to be addressing sort of you know, myths or questions around COVID-19. I know that things that have been circulating, like certain foods will prevent it or certain people are immune from it, those kinds of things. What are you seeing along those lines and how are people, like what's the efficient form of communication for communities? How are they sharing that those kinds of things? Well, for myself, um, I was on a Zoom call, I think it was two days ago, and one person said, like I heard that it's um, that it's caused by 5G. I've heard that too, the 5G network. Yeah, that the 5G network right. is the reason why we have COVID-19. And I remember saying, like, no, we need to use true information, real evidence from people that we trust, people who do this for a living, you know, researchers, scientists. We need to make sure that we, when these things come up, that we are saying something. I know that one way a lot of these myths are shared are through social media. I'm not huge on social media myself, but I definitely have had, you know, people tell me things like, oh my gosh, sis, did you hear this? Like, I'm like, oh my, no, just please, you know, wherever you're seeing that, please let them know. Please do not spread this information because you're actually harming our community by, by spreading these things that are not true, right? Let us focus on things that are true, that are evidence-based, that are from reliable sources, you know, I just try to tell people to question, um, well, where did you get that? Where did you hear that? Well, I think, you know, we have this other narrative that I do believe. And if you can help me spread that, that would be great. Regina, what kind of things are you hearing? Well, a lot of information out there. And I had from one of the large community of East African uh, immigrants and refugees yeah, and uh, there was myth that this is another form of Ebola. So to be able to say that this is not Ebola, this is coronavirus, they have different symptoms. This one is actually spreading really fast, maybe than even Ebola was. Just to make sure that we're creating that sense of calm uh, in the population, but also really providing information that's needed, especially when you hear that from a leader it's always the best occasion to debunk that myth as soon as possible because that person has really influenced the community to reach out to. So, and that can be such a tough process because those kinds of things arise really quickly. And it's, you know, how do you stay on top of all of those different kinds of messages? I find out working directly with the community partners, it helps us be in a big way to be able to reach out to community members and um, collect information as soon as possible. Otherwise, if we would just rely on our other ways of uh, we disseminate information to the people, it will be too late. But these cultural specific uh, community leaders are very key. Um, they play a key role in terms of getting information as cancer. And actually, information back to us too, like this is what we're hearing. How can we make sure that our community are getting the right information right away? I know that part of the, when we talk about community health and how to strengthen that, there's often the question of how do you build community resilience? 
And so I would like you to talk a little bit about that. I know that's a bigger question, and there's also the urgent need because of the context around COVID-19 and what's happening. But how are you thinking about building community resilience in these times? So how I see it is reminding our community of the strengths that they have, right? So many of us who are people of color, indigenous people, there's so many narratives that, you know, a lot of us are statistically shouldn't be here, right? Because of um, institutions in place to make sure that people like us don't survive, that there is no next generation for us. As someone who is Pacific Islander, you know, hearing stories like my mom being born during World War II in Palau with Japanese rule while, you know, had to hide in caves while the United States was bombing the islands, you know, and having to rebuild because a lot of the bombs had uh, torn up the taro patches, you know, had um, polluted the lagoons where they go fishing. Just, I remember, and we talk about the ways that we have survived and that we will continue surviving. Yes, it's really hard. And it's not to downplay that this is not hard, right? Like, yes, let's come together. Let us think about the ways that we have gone through things in the past and what are those practices that we can do right now? What is medicine in our life, right? Because we don't always practice things from a Western point of view, right? Um, Making sure that my mom has enough ginger and lemon for her daily tea, that's her medicine, right? Like making sure she has enough Vicks and coconut oil to rub rub all over her body, that is medicine. So constantly thinking like, what are the ways that we have thrived everything else? We're going to make it here too. And how can we uplift that and make sure that we don't forget who we are? We don't forget where we came from and that we are strong and resilient people. And that's only one way, right? And then you have to actually have systems in place to support that, right? For example, um, I sit on the board of APANO and the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon. And when COVID-19, all the work was coming up, they were able to find ways to get grants from different community organizations, banks, in order to re-grant to the communities who are in need. So using what they're already good at, recognizing what we're already good at and saying, I will support you in that because that is great, right? How can I help you with that? So just recognizing what we do well uh, and even like what skills do we want to develop right now. I'm not great at this thing. If I have the capacity to learn how to do this, for example, these phone calls, these Zoom calls, right? Yeah. Yeah. I am not normally someone who likes to be on a digital call. (laughs) I'm from a population of people who we want to be in the same room together. We want to smell the same air together. We want to touch each other and like hold hands and eat. That is our medicine, right? That is how we connect. That is how we show we love each other. And this is very hard. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we don't meet. Right. We still continue to meet just in the new ways in order for us to still be in community. So just trying to like, what do our values and principles and beliefs that we have, we've always had, how can we translate that for what is going on right now? Regina, what are your thoughts on building community resilience? Yes, it is a big topic, especially these days when people are just trying to say about this virus and meeting their daily needs. But uh, what we are planning to do and continue to do is to have that relationship with existing community-based organizations, knowing that they have that strength, they know the community needs, much they express on the ground, 
and us as government agencies to listen to them and value what they say and uh, really take them as um, key stakeholders to make sure that we work together closely to find um, not only to meet the needs of the people, but also to do our part as individuals, as communities, to make sure that we can um, survive and we will survive at the end of the day to make sure that there's that collaboration, there's um, that acknowledgement what everyone brings on the table. And um, we're also, I know the city is, um, uh, has initiated a lot of economic relief programs to make sure that we can disperse funding back to the community-based organizations to be able to care for the communities they serve directly. And that way we continue to build also capacity of those institutions especially at these times when their funding could be um, diminishing in one way or the other, given that everything has changed. So, yeah, there's that understanding, there's that collaboration, there's um, just linking resources that we have to make sure that no one's left behind and we're all working. What would you say are the, when you talk about avenues for community voice and making sure that government or institutions or systems are actually listening to the communities, what are the best ways to make that happen? What are the avenues for which community voice can be elevated? I know um, from what I'll speak of what I have been seeing, what I have had, um, I know from my Nama County, they recently organized uh, like Latinx um, press conference with Dr. Vines. We would listen to the community members who speak Spanish directly and ask her questions directly. I think what that helps is the community understanding that now we have uh, someone who is listening to us, is responding to us directly, and she's hearing from us directly as well. I think that builds that trust and bond, knowing that the communities are not left by themselves, that government agencies and local officials are here to listen and find solutions as well. And I know um, Ciro Poland Mayor, Ted Weir has also been communicating, having those press conferences, actually Zoom like this one, to hear from community members and the community organizations, how can the city uh, support everyone in these times. So I think when you provide that space and time to listen to community needs, in the end, not only that you build that trust in the community, but also you, you show true leadership that you are here to listen <laughs> and uh, to hear what people concerns are and how you can be able to address them. Virginia, thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, Regina gave a really great answer. And I guess if you needed like a concrete example, the Pacific Islander community in Multnomah County, we have something called the Pacific Islander Coalition. It's made up of Pacific Islander serving organizations. And because we are a smaller community, we tend to have the same leaders show up to the same table and people in the community have some kind of personal connection with them. Because I've been a, a community leader for so many years, even before I started at Multnomah County, people know my telephone number. I get personal phone calls. <laughs> you know, people share my number. I get phone calls from family who are like, oh, you know, my daughter is going to be applying to Portland State University. Can you tell her how to apply? <laughs> you know? So I think right, it just right. shows how connected our community is, right? The Pacific Islander community that I'll just get random phone calls from people that I may not have met in person, but someone will give my phone number away and say, you know, whatever it is that they're looking for. And then what I do is then I reach out to my connections and say, 
here's what's going on, right? I'm having, like, for example, with with COVID-19, there was an organization that was trying to find out how do we get access to face coverings to find out later that we had a communities of color PPE materials, you know, request form, right? So while I didn't know the request form existed, someone asked me and then I asked someone else. So it really is about relationship, relationship and connections. Um, And it's based on relationships that have been connected. And because of the trust building, we are going to the people right now that we trust, that we see stepping up, that we see who have been active leaders, that we have you know, have already done things in the past and we know that they are the go-tos. That right now in my community, that is how things are getting done. I know you both mentioned a couple of resources. Um, I know you have additional ones. We will be willing to share those and get those out to our networks. But is there any particular place you want to mention right now to send people to, or is there anything else that you want us to know about your work before we wrap up? Most of uh, information related to COVID-19 since it's public health issue, they are on um, my normal account website. So that's the best uh, location I'm saying they want to get information. We tried to like summarize our information. We know that it's very relevant to cultural specific organization or cultural specific community members. So when you go on my normal website, there's section specifically for resources uh, that people can tap into and share with their community members. Great. Uh, Virginia, did you want to mention anything? Yeah, I was trying to bring it up on my computer so I can read it out loud. I would, you know, you can also just on your Google or your search engine, Multnomah County COVID-19. It's multco.us, novel coronavirus COVID-19. It's really long, but um, (laughs) I tend to just find it by trying the search engine. But what I love about it is it's got a daily situational report. It's got access to different resources that are in different languages. But I think if like, to me, that situation report really shows um, I'm able to convey that message to what is happening right now. What are the ways that we're supporting our community? For example, like how are our communities doing their funeral services right now, right? Like um, funeral rites and ceremony is so part of our community. And normally with the mourning process that you do it together, right? So there is, for example, there's going to be a webinar that's going to be tomorrow and you can find that information on the situational report. And I think, you know, as things come up, they're being put on that website. I think it's just going to be easier if Regina and I um, share that link with you. It's a great website, but I feel like you have to know where to go is our challenge. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's always a little bit challenging with government websites. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's the truth. That's the truth. (laughs) Well, let's connect on that link. We are happy to get that out to our networks and any other resources that come up. Um, But I wanted to thank you both, Regina and Virginia, for taking some time to speak with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Come on, Masulang. Thanks for having us. This is the Early Link podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure that every child in Oregon has the best start in life. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Join us and tune in on 99.1 FM on the second and fourth Sunday of every month at 4.30 p.m. Thanks for joining us today. Please tune in next time or find our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org and on the Portland Radio Project website at prp.fm.